Welcome to the latest episode of the Comic Book Podcast Pilot Season. Today is the second chapter in the comic book physics series, and the topic that we're picking out in particular is Spider-Man's webs and how he uses them for travel. One of the things that always rubbed me the wrong way about it was the constant depiction that Spider-Man can outrun traffic with his webs simply by swinging through the city. Even before I studied physics formally, that didn't seem right to me. So what we're going to do today is discuss the physics of actually swinging along webs and figure out what kind of speeds you can obtain by doing that. So the way webs work are essentially like pendulums. In order to swing on a web line to transfer through a city, he's shooting his web out at a higher point on some nearby building, and then the web goes taut. There's no bungee effect in the comics, as there is in the movies. We might look at that later. For now, we'll just stick with the comic version where the web is a fairly rigid line. And in reality, because it's not constrained to a particular plane of motion, meaning Spider-Man, when he's swinging forward, can also swing side to side, there's a lot of higher order effects that we'd have to take into account. Now, all of these effects would have the overall result of slowing him down. So because we're trying to find out, is it reasonable that he could outrun traffic? We're going to ignore those effects at this point and just take the optimal case as though the web is swinging on something directly in front of him and he's swinging within a two-dimensional plane. So front to back, not left to right. So like a lot of physics, this is going to come down to looking at energy and motion. So the way pendulums work is a combination of energy and motion. You start off with your pendulum bob or your pendulum line, and it's going to be a particular length. One of the interesting things about pendulums is that the amount of time it takes for that pendulum to go through one period, meaning, say, swing from the rightmost extreme to the leftmost extreme and back, depends on only two variables. One is the length between the fulcrum, or the point that actually pivots, to the center of mass of the pendulum, and we'll get into center mass a bit more in a moment. And the other is the strength of the gravitational field that you're in. So as long as we're doing these experiments on planet Earth, that's going to be consistent. So the amount of time it takes that pendulum to swing is going to be based solely on the distance between the fulcrum and the center of mass. So what is the center of mass of that construct? It's basically a mathematical shortcut in a lot of ways. The center of mass is something that we use to simplify calculations. If we were to do things in full and gratuitous detail. We'd have to take a look at each particular atom within the pendulum, how far it swings, how far it is from the fulcrum, and all the forces it has pulling on all the atoms nearby. And doing that for every atom is just totally unfeasible. There are far too many of them. So we use a shortcut. Instead of saying, oh, let's take this two meter long pendulum bob and deal with every atom, we figure out what we call the center of mass. We figure if we were to treat this entire pendulum bob as a single point with zero volume that has all of this mass, where would that point have to be to give the same behavior and have the same properties? That point is what we call the center of mass. This is why a lot of pendulums have a very long bob before you have that large weight on the bottom, and why if you were to take the large weight off the bottom of a pendulum in an old-fashioned clock or anything else that actually needs the pendulum to run, all of a sudden it's not going to be working correctly. Taking that bob off the bottom moves the center of mass back up the line. The reason we have that nice big bob on the bottom of most pendulums is to drive that center mass down to the bottom so we can approximate the center of mass just by using the length of the stick or the length of the bob. Now the energy that's coming into this is coming essentially from gravity. 
So when Spider-Man attaches his web to something and releases his grip on a building, he starts in motion. And motion requires kinetic energy. That kinetic energy is coming up from the gravitational potential energy. Essentially, gravity is pulling him down, and it's that force of gravity that's causing him to accelerate. So that energy he had was potential. It wasn't energy of motion or energy being used to do any sort of scientific work. While he was affixed to the side of the building, once he starts falling, that energy builds. So the question is, what is the maximum kinetic energy he can reach? What is the maximum speed he can reach? We can deduce where that maximum would be if we look at it just from a purely non-mathematical perspective. We want to make sure that the web line stays taut, and we want to make sure he's fairly high, so he's got a greater distance to fall. And the way we balance both of those is by looking at the angle the web makes between Spider-Man and the thing it's attached to. If we go higher than 90 degrees, or higher than a right angle, or a directly horizontal web line, then we run the risk of him falling before the web line gets taut. And because there's no bungee effect, that could dislocate his shoulder, which is a bit of a problem for our hero. So let's ignore that, and let's say, for optimal purposes, the web line's coming out at 90 degrees. The issue is that when we're sitting down and going through the math, we can't use degrees. It's a little bit odd. Degrees are the most common and one of the oldest known measures of angle. We take a circle, chop it into 360 equal slices, and say each of these slices is one degree. Why 360? We're not entirely sure. A lot of people will teach you that, well, it's because they were trying to set up one degree as one day. That doesn't make sense to have it as one day of the year. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, this was developed long before people realized that the sun was the center of the solar system and the earth was moving around it. So if you don't draw that circle in your mind, the only circle you see is the sun and the moon going around the earth. And those both seem to be 22 to 24 hours. Why well, pick 360? The other issue with that is that the 360 degrees in a circle, mathematically speaking, long, long predates the 365 degree calendar. There's actually a couple of centuries between them, at least as far as we can tell. It appears that the choice of 360 degrees in a circle was fairly arbitrary, but was made most likely because it predates decimal numbers, which means the only numbers they can represent at the time between whole numbers were represented by fractions. 360 has a lot of factors, so it made it easier to chop that circle up. So a quarter circle, 360 is divisible by 4. It's divisible by 2, by 3, by 4, by 5, by 6, by 10. It has enough factors to be useful. So with all those factors in mind, that's a circle we can work with. And that's something that gives us a lot of flexibility. So it appears that's where the 360 degree process came from. Unfortunately, it's not what we call a natural measure of degrees. It was an arbitrary measure that humans laid on top of the circle. It's not something that came from the math itself. It's a decision we made. Just like, you know, you might decide to use feet in the United States and two other countries on the planet, and everyone else in the world uses the metric system with meters and centimeters. It's an arbitrary measure. With degrees, mathematicians have found a much more natural measure, and that's called the radian. And the radian is the measure of angle that you absolutely must use anytime you see your angles anywhere but inside of a trigonometric function. So if you're not taking the sine, cosine, or tangent, and you just have an angle sitting out on its own, it absolutely must be in radians every single time. So how do we measure a radian? It's got to be something we can standardize with every circle. And one thing we know about every circle is the ratio of the diameter to the circumference, or the ratio of the radius to the circumference. Turns out that radius is much more useful from a mathematical perspective than diameter, so that's what we use. 
If we were to look at an arc of a circle, so not taking the entire circle, but just chopping the circle into wedges, the arc length is the length of that curved edge. That's from the outer part of the circle, the portion of the circumference that's in that wedge. And when we say length of that curved edge, it's like you cut it out physically, you put a piece of string so that it's a perfect fit on top of that curve, then you straighten the string and measure that. That's the arc length. If you divide that by the radius, then that ratio is the angle in radians that you're measuring. If you were to take the entire circle, you're taking the circumference, which is 2 times pi times the radius, and dividing it by the radius to form your ratio, which leaves 2 pi as the number of radians in an entire circle. If you were to take a quarter of the circumference, you'd have that 2 pi over 4, which is the same as pi over 2. So now that we've defined what a radian is, let's move forward and start using them. Now the speed that you get when you're swinging on a pendulum, the maximum speed of the bob is given by multiplying the maximum angle in radians that you can pull the bob back to times the square root of the product of acceleration due to gravity, so the gravitational field strength and the length of that pendulum bob measured from the fulcrum to the center of mass. Those are the only two variables in that square root. And the final portion is the cosine of the time involved times the square root of the gravitational field strength divided by the length of the pendulum bob. It's a little bit complicated, especially doing math in a purely audio format, but hopefully that came out slowly enough that you could transcribe it and follow along if you're inclined to do so. So the question now is, what kind of time can you make if you're moving with those parameters? Well, let's say that you're moving at a maximum of a 90 degree angle. So your theta max is that right angle, purely horizontal to start with. 90 degrees becomes pi over 2 radians. The gravitational field strength on Earth is 9.80665 meters per second squared. Now, Peter, having grown up in Manhattan, would probably use the imperial units. It's a little out of my comfort zone, but whatever, that's what he's doing, so that's what I'll do. In imperial units, it's roughly 32.174 feet per second squared. So judging by the art, most of the time we can say Spider-Man's using 50 feet of web line at a 45 degree angle or pi over 4 radians. Using those numbers, we get his maximum speed on a particular swing to be about 31.5 feet per second or 21.5 miles per hour, which in metric units is 9.6 meters per second or about 35 kilometers per hour. So that's, at least where I live, that's a little faster than you can go in a school zone but it's certainly not regular residential speeds. The question is, what kind of time does that make in Manhattan? After doing some Google searches, looks like the average taxi speed in Manhattan is 9.3 miles per hour. And I think it's safe to say that 21.5 miles per hour is better than 9.3 miles per hour. So it does pan out. Peter can actually outrun the average traffic in Manhattan by using his web line and avoiding the traffic congestion. It wouldn't necessarily work on lighter traffic. He couldn't beat highway speeds. He's not that fast, but he is fast enough that he is better off going by the web lines rather than buying his own car, especially in Manhattan. Well, at least it appears that way. What we don't know about the web is how much it costs to make this stuff. We know it costs something. He's always wondering, especially in the early issues, where he's going to find the money to buy the web lines and to buy the web fluid and the ingredients he needs to make the web fluid. But compare that to the cost of parking a car and filling it with gas these days, he may not be doing too bad. So unlike Thor's hammer last week, this week it looks like the comic book physics does work. The biggest issue we'd have is that hitting these optimal speeds means coming out at the bottom of the web line and not swinging the web line quite as high as the rest. So in other words, to maintain these maximum speeds, he's got to leave the web line at the very bottom when his motion is purely horizontal and attach his next web line at an angle that's purely horizontal to the starting point. That runs into problems because he's going to constantly swing down, but then go onto a new web 
sideline before he can swing up. So he'll make good time horizontally. He'll also continually fall to the ground. Now, if he's moving high enough above traffic, he can lose some of that maximum horizontal momentum so that he can dip up a little bit and shoot off his next web line and maintain a fairly high altitude then means he may not be doing a little over double the ground traffic, but he could still outrun it, at least on the average day. And of course, a longer web line, if he picks it from a farther building, that will increase the length of the pendulum line and increase his maximum speed without necessarily increasing the angle that he swings through by a huge degree, or decreasing the angle he swings through by a huge degree. So he could make even better time than that under the right conditions. Well, that wraps up the second chapter in the Comic Book Physics series of podcasts. Please join us again tomorrow for the second chapter of the Golden Age Greats podcast when we look at Silver Street Comics number six. Thank you for listening.